Hi, Vetfolio Voice peeps. Thanks for tuning in to this discussion about disc disease and other causes of back and neck pain featuring Dr. Nicole Block and sponsored by Hills. As much as I hate to admit it, it's easy to see a pup with neck or back pain and assume you're looking at IBDD. But there are a large number of conditions that can result in neck and back pain beyond just disc disease. In this episode, Dr. Block and I break down the differentials for back pain and preferred treatment, as well as when to refer. It was such a fun episode for me because I felt like I just got a specialist consult to clarify all the questions that seem to plague me when I'm treating a pet with neck or back pain. Dr. Block is a second ear neurology resident at Blue Pearl Veterinary Partners in Sandy Springs, Georgia. She has special interests in intervertebral disc disease, both conservative and surgical management, as well as seizure management and meningoencephalitis of unknown etiology. She's from Long Island, New York, She graduated with honors from St. George's University School of Veterinary Medicine and completed her clinical year at The Ohio State University. She completed her internal medicine and surgery rotating internship with VCA in Shelton, Connecticut, and she then moved to Sandy Springs for her neurology specialty internship and stayed on for residency. In her free time, she loves to spend time with her three dogs, Bowser, Bucky, and Coco, and enjoys working out and live music. And if you enjoy this episode, you can check out hillsnorthamerica.com for more information on IVDD from Dr. Block. Today, I'm here with Dr. Nicole Block. We're going to talk about IVDD or intervertebral disc disease. So Dr. Block, thank you so much for being here and being with me on the podcast. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, me too. Me too. So let's start with the basics. Can you just give us kind of a quick review of the anatomy of the spine and how disc herniation affects the spine? Sure. Any veterinarians out there listening, we remember back even to our neuroanatomy classes about discs being those little cushions that sit in between each of the bones of the back, um, also the neck. And so the typical anatomy of the disc itself, it's almost similar to like a jelly donut where we have that inner nucleus propulsus layer, and then that outer more fibrous, the annulus fibrosis layer. And we can see disc herniations or disc disease really as kind of issues or dysplasia with that kind of cartilage and outer firm layer can kind of break down and we can get that inner gelatinous portion herniate up and out of place. And that's kind of our typical Hansen type two disc extrusions that we think about. And we can sometimes see herniations where we have a lot of compressive material sitting in that spinal canal, squeezing on that spinal cord. And then we could also see some types of herniations where we don't have a lot of compressive material, but that spinal cord has sustained like a bruise or contusion that we need to recover from. Man, it's taking me back to, to neuro where I'm like, as you're explaining this, I'm like, oh yes, yes, I do know this stuff and and the different types of herniations and stuff. So thank you for the reminder and kind of going back to neuro. I'm also hearing my, my professors in my head going, okay, localize the lesion. So can you kind of also review with us our neuro exam and some of the key points we should make sure we're assessing in localizing these lesions? Yeah, exactly. So the whole kind of neurologic exam, like you just mentioned, is really doing a localization in terms of where do we think our disease is. So looking at our patients in full, we check their mentation, making sure they're bright, you know, alert and appropriate, no kind of head related signs, cranial nerve exam, 
their ambulatory status, if they're ambulatory or non-ambulatory, all the reflexes of the legs, mostly focusing on the withdrawal reflex and patellar reflexes, and then conscious proprioception or postural reactions. So flipping those paws over, seeing if they're correcting themselves. And then also direct palpation of the neck and lower spine. And then in some cases, especially in paralyzed patients, we'll be checking that cutaneous trunk eye reflex, really when they have no deep pain, because that can be an indicator of some progression of neurologic signs if they're that severely affected. And then knowing if all four legs are affected, we have an issue either in the neck or the brain, but obviously if it's only those back legs, we're dealing with a kind of a mid back to lower spine issue. Thinking about the reflexes here for a minute, because reflexes can be a little bit tricky where, you know, like that patellar reflex, I feel like we have that in a lot of cases and sometimes the forelimb reflexes um, can be hard to assess in different patients. Are there any like tips that you have where you're like, this is something that really clues me in when we're checking those reflexes? Yeah, I think sometimes making sure you're giving a strong enough stimulus, like especially with the withdrawal and that toe pinch reflex. So sometimes even I can use like a hemostat, not checking for deep pain, but just giving them a stronger stimulus where I'm really seeing that leg being pulled back like we normally should see. And then also sometimes having our patients in lateral recumbency, not just standing. So having them on their side and checking the top leg. And then with the patellar reflexes, the same thing, you know, really feeling that patellar ligament and trying to hit it, you know, kind of right in the middle with your reflex hammer. And then sometimes checking the down leg, like if a patient's in lateral recumbency, sometimes when you're checking the patellar reflex on that down leg, you're more likely to get a response in the top leg. And they don't really know why that is. Like even in De La Hunta's textbook, they mention that, but they're not really sure why. So a lot of times I'll put my spinal cases in recumbency and kind of check top and bottom leg, you know, at the same time. Oh, I think that's great advice, man. And now we're talking about De La Hunta. Like now I'm, now I'm really like thinking about my, my time studying for neuro exams in vet school. Yep. Oh, I still have that book by the way, and still use it. Good. <laughs> so we've got our patient, we've diagnosed back pain, we've vocalized the lesion, but you know, I'll admit at that point, I've definitely been guilty of saying, okay, you know, we've got back pain, most likely IVDD, but you know, it's important not to forget those other possibilities. So what are some of the differential diagnoses that we should keep on our list for these patients? Yeah, that's a great point. So in terms of any myelopathy, you know, also to using our exam and also client history about how kind of acute or chronic signs may be going on for some other disease processes that we think about besides disc disease would be like fibrocartilaginous embolisms or spinal strokes, things like trauma. So fractures, luxations of the spine, disc infections, so discospondylitis, some of the more inflammatory conditions like a myelitis, which could be autoimmune or infectious, even neoplastic disease can sometimes come on pretty acutely and almost mimic like a disc herniation. So things like tumors of the spinal cord itself or tumors of the, of the vertebra. And then degenerative myelopathy is kind of that more classic, very chronic, you know, over the course of months, ongoing paresis that would all be kind of considered anytime we have kind of a spinal case. Are there any features in particular that would make us lean one way or the other? I think just like you mentioned, in terms of even sometimes focal spinal discomfort or back pain, that sometimes makes me think more IVDD or even things like mass or tumor and disc infection or discospondylitis. In terms of non-painful palpations, 
with ongoing weakness, sometimes FCEs can present like that. So they're actually not painful on spinal palpation. And then they can also be sometimes asymmetric. So one limb can look stronger than the other, which again, we can see with disc herniations as well. And then with fibrocartilaginous embolisms, sometimes we can see even transient loss of reflexes like in one of the legs. So again, kind of paying close attention to our patellar and withdrawal reflexes. And then where we kind of think, you know, where in the spine the problem is. So kind of driving home there, the importance of making sure that we're checking reflexes in these patients and not just saying, you know, ambulatory, non-ambulatory. Yes, because even those nerves, you know, where kind of sciatic and femoral nerve come off of, we can sometimes even have like lower lumbar disc herniation. So really be like an L4 to S2 localization versus a T3, L3. Gotcha. Gotcha. One thing I really struggle with when I, when I truly do suspect IVDD and I feel like medical therapy is warranted is what type of anti-inflammatory do I reach for? You know, I've heard some of us reach for NSAIDs, some of us reach for steroids. Are there any guidelines out there to decide which drug to use for these patients? Yeah, that's a great point. So there's sort of still, you know, even debates and personal opinions, you know, with either surgeons or neurosurgeons about medical management of a steroid versus a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. There's also going to be a new consensus statement coming out about intervertebral disc disease. And they've even been saying, you know, in terms of studies that have been done, really don't have one that proves, you know, a significant response to therapy using one versus the other. Just in general, you know, they both carry the risks of gastrointestinal bleeding. So obviously being careful not to use them in combination with each other. And typically like where I'm trained now, my mentors are really proponents for steroids. So prednisone and do find in their kind of clinical experience and years and years of kind of treating these guys that even in cases with medical therapy or even post-operatively, they feel like dogs that are non-ambulatory tend to get on their feet a bit quicker and have better pain control when we're using steroids versus a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. I think again, anywhere we're doing, you know, general practicing um, or kind of in these hospitals, getting to know the specialists in your area and what they prefer, because that can sometimes help with washout periods and not having that risk of GI upset. And then typically they say that you really only need to be on these medications conservative wise, like maybe about a week or so. So starting maybe at twice a day with a tapering down and that in patients that aren't recovering as well as we'd hope about a week mark is a good indication that we might need to get more, you know, aggressive with things, you know, in terms of surgical management of this disease. Oh, okay. All right. I didn't know that with the one week mark being kind of a good indicator there of going one way or the other. Yeah. Now I'm just in terms of even both non-steroidals and steroids can, reach steady state usually within a day or so. So still, even though we might have a compressive disc, you know, there that needs time for that body to kind of heal down. So we kind of use those anti-inflammatories in the meantime, but that could be a good indicator as long as there's no worsening in that time, you know, about how a patient's going to do or respond to medical therapy. Sure. Sure. And it's making me feel a lot better to know that there's not a great consensus on steroids versus non-steroidals. Cause I feel like in general, I don't, I don't know if I have like a standardized what I reach for. I think I kind of take it on a case by case basis, but I've always wondered like, am I doing the right thing here? Should I be reaching for one or the other? And so to know that, you know, it's, it's kind of exactly that case dependent practitioner dependent. Yeah, for sure. Very good. Very good. 
of course, you know, client communication is really important in these cases to help ensure the best outcome, whether we are thinking medically or surgically treated. So what do we need to make sure that we're discussing with owners when it comes to treating these patients? In terms of client discussion, I think a lot of it too depends on how severely the patient is affected. So if a patient's ambulatory with maybe back pain alone, you know, the big discussions even in general that we have is really kind of strict crate confinement, you know, for about three to four weeks. If there are small dogs carrying them inside and outside to kind of use the bathroom and then back into rest, and then also continuing the medications, you know, with rest being just as important as the medications and the healing process of things. In terms of bigger dogs or even dogs off their feet, you know, I think it comes down to, to sometimes recumbency care and that discussion as well, you know, saying, hey, you know, this patient's pretty affected. We might not be getting back on our feet quickly, but also making sure that we're keeping them in well-padded bedding, kind of rotating which hip that they're laying down on. Some do need help like with bladder expression and voiding of the bladder with like manual bladder palpations that sometimes clients aren't very comfortable with, or if a patient is painful or they're large, it can be difficult to manage that. So still having that ongoing relationship, you know, with either whatever neurologist or surgeons managing the case or the primary care veterinarian as well. And then something that we now talk about more than what we used to, I think, is also that option of kind of rehab and kind of formal physical therapy and those types of options as well to try to help maintain, you know, muscle mass and that mobility, you know, regardless of how affected, how affected, excuse me, a patient is. What about in terms of having that conversation about we can manage this medically and do all of the things that you just talked about, which I think was an awesome review, the strict rest and making sure we're urinating and, and controlling pain and all these different things versus this really doesn't make sense to manage medically. We really need to talk surgical or at least talk referral. What kind of indicators would we have? And do you have any pointers for us on how to bring that up to clients to just kind of steer the patient in the right direction? For sure. So I think the big things about kind of red flags and when maybe we should be thinking about referral is really any patient off of their feet or pretty affected like ambulatory paraparetic dogs where they might be taking a couple steps and then falling over and also how quick the history has been. So did this patient, you know, was kind of running around walking completely normal last night and then this morning is now pretty weak, you know, we're almost paralyzed. And I think those patients with a very quick progression of signs warrant referral, or at least that discussion initially. And then whenever we're even thinking about referral, you know, preparing our owners for, you know, what's to come. So there might be a discussion about advanced spinal imaging, general anesthesia, potential open spinal surgery and those types of things, which have costs associated with it, as well as like an eight to 10 week recovery period, you know, if surgery is in question. And the other patient that I think sometimes, even if they're fully ambulatory, where we might talk about referral are those like severe neck pain, you know, cases where you might have like a little Frenchie or a dachshund that is just you know, having these severe muscle fasciculations, they're crying out in pain, you know, almost every time they move, you know, I think even if they're walking, those patients can certainly be talked to about referral kind of straight away. And I love that you brought up the muscle fasciculations because that kind of segues into my next question that I want to know personally, <laughs> along the lines of medical therapies, talking about muscle relaxants like methocarbamol and their role in managing these patients. I've always wondered, when are these indicated? When are they not indicated? I would say for me, I tend to not use them very much, but is that something I should be incorporating more for these guys? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I find, I agree with you in terms of even when I practice, you know, with neurospecialty, most of the times we can get away with like an anti-inflammatory and like gabapentin, which is that good neuropathic pain medication. However, in some of those really obvious muscle fasciculation patients, methylcarbamol can be a good kind of add on, you know, to those therapies in and of itself. And sometimes we even do like temporary fentanyl patch placement if they're really uncomfortable. And I think that's the tough part too, with these, you know, neck pain cases where, you know, either owners want to say, you know, I want to exhaust medical, you know, options, you know, for whatever reason, whether the patient has comorbidities or, you know, financial burdens where they just want to try to avoid doing things like MRI and potential surgery. I think that's when a good, that would be a good indication for using a muscle relaxant is if we can kind of really feel or see those muscle fasciculations. And we typically dose it, you know, every eight hours along with gabapentin, but sometimes even every six hours in a severely affected case. And then kind of giving that kind of buffer of like, hopefully those anti-inflammatories, you know, kicking in as, as we start the recovery phase of things. So if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like methocarbamol does play a role more specifically with these, these severe neck pain, severe muscle fasciculations in the neck and those kind of patients, but not necessarily in like some, some of the milder back pain cases. Yeah, I find like most of the back or the lower spine cases, we can get away with an anti-inflammatory and gabapentin. Perfect. Thank you for answering. That's something I've always wondered about. <laughs> yep, exactly. And okay, and I think we've even like kind of talked about it before, because sometimes you're like, am I going to, you know, hurt them by, you know, relaxing their muscles? Because that's trying to their kind of compensatory mechanism to try to kind of guard themselves. But I think ultimately, there's not that much of a risk with it. And if anything, it'll try to settle, settle them down, make them feel a bit more comfortable. Wonderful, wonderful. Another struggle is determining the point at which medical therapy just really is not the best option for this patient, and we should absolutely recommend referral. Is there kind of a telltale point where it becomes a definite referral case versus one where we should rely on medical therapy? Yeah, so I think, you know, medical therapy could be a good option for a patient if it's sort of their first problem, you know, with a spinal issue. And then also, again, based on their severity of neurologic deficit. So if they have back pain alone or they're still walking with maybe just kind of like a stilted gait or maybe an occasional kind of scuffing of one of the back legs, I think medical therapy would be a good starting point. In which case, if it is something like an acute disc herniation, Usually we gauge around maybe 50 to 60% success rate with medical therapy alone. And then if a patient's been on medications or even like we talked about in anti-inflammatory for about five, seven days and still either having difficulty with pain or still or worsening neurologically. So if maybe we were ambulatory with a little bit of weakness, now we're kind of dragging the limbs, you know, that would be a more push for kind of more diagnostics and a more aggressive treatment plan for that patient. So it sounds like a conversation I have with pet owners about in a lot of different scenarios where I'll say they should get a little better every day. They should never stay stagnant for very long and they should never get better, 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 worse. So if we're kind of staying stagnant or, you know, worsening in any way, then definitely we need to push for referral. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, this is why I love this job is because I just get to, you know, sit down with the experts and ask all of my burning questions because as I'm reading these, I'm going... Yep. These are all questions that I, I always struggle with personally when managing these cases. And my next question is about radiographs and the role that radiographs play in diagnosing these patients. For example, if we suspect IVDD, you know, we may not see anything on those x-rays. So sometimes I struggle with, are they still indicated? Are they still helpful? 
What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think, you know, x-rays can be pretty helpful, you know, in terms of even ruling out like some of those differentials that we mentioned. So making sure that we're not dealing with anything like discospondylitis, where we can sometimes see those roughened end plates on x-rays alone, and also making sure we don't see anything like bone lysis or destruction on x-rays. So that could also help, you know, in terms of before going down that advanced imaging option, you know, even picking up on some changes on x-rays alone with regards to those differentials. And then in terms of intervertebral disc disease, x-rays can be helpful with kind of confirming anatomy of the patient. So making sure that they have 13 thoracic vertebra, seven lumbar vertebra, and then also looking for either narrowing of the disc spaces and then mineralization of any of the discs. So there's been studies done looking at dachshunds and the number of mineralized discs in their spine, and that actually can give some indication of percentages for recurrence. So normally when we have a patient that's undergone you know, disc herniation confirmed with imaging may have had surgery. We usually say there's a recurrence rate of about 20 to 30%. And then in that paper, they had mentioned that if a dachshund had like five or more sites of mineralization on their x-rays, they had even as high as like a 40 to 50% chance of herniating another disc in the future. So I think that could also be very helpful information to have, you know, in terms of talking to our clients and owners, you know, about how aggressive, you know, they would want to be. And also like if we have a patient that has a bunch of mineralized discs in the back, but they're still walking is, well, maybe we can try to get away with medical therapy. If this patient might, you know, have a risk of, you know, herniating another disc in the future and be more affected at at that time. So sometimes I think it could help, you know, in terms of treatment options from our kind of veterinary standpoint as well. Sure. So talking about referral versus medical therapy, and also sometimes, you know, I I hate to think about it, but it's true. Sometimes we're talking life and death decisions in these guys. So giving us a little bit more solid information to bring to the owner to determine what the best thing is for that pet. Yeah, exactly. What are your thoughts on adjunctive therapies like acupuncture, laser, you know, these kinds of things? I think that they can be very beneficial. So um, doing things like acupuncture can a lot of times help, you know, with pain control and then also kind of functionality as well. And then laser therapy for things like disc herniations can be, again, helpful in terms of increasing blood flow to that area, trying to promote some healing. The one kind of disease process that is usually contraindicated with laser would be for something like a tumor or a mass, because we wouldn't want to increase blood flow to those types, you know, to that area. So it would be something where I think with advanced imaging, kind of knowing what exactly the disease process is that could be helpful with laser therapy. But also now I find there's just more referral to like formal physical therapy and rehab facilities for animals where they have things like water treadmills you know, laser, acupuncture, certain, you know, kind of more even land exercises and kind of balance balls and things like that, that could be just really helpful with these guys as they're recovering. Awesome. You know, so many times with these pups that are affected, they are a little bit on the heavy side. And so we're having to talk to owners about how their weight is impacting this disease process. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the impact of body condition score and nutrition on intervertebral disc disease and and some of these other back pain issues as well. Yeah. And that's exactly right. You know, I find, and, you know, we all, I think find that in some of our overweight patients, or if they're having, you know, body condition scores of six out of nine or higher, 
you know, that increased or excess body weight increases the stress, you know, on our joints and then even the discs themselves in the back, especially these kind of low riding chondrodystrophic breeds where they, you know, already their kind of conformation is adding stress to their spine. That extra weight can certainly come into play with things. I think the other thing to consider is that patients that maintain good body condition scores can sometimes have a more quicker recovery, like with medical therapy or even surgery, just because again, I think that stress or that extra weight is not, you know, present in those guys that they can, you know, I think there was a study done that even looked at body condition scores in patients that had undergone spinal surgery. And if they had a body condition score of six out of nine or less, they were more quickly on their feet, like if they were at a non-ambulatory status following surgery, they were on their feet about, you know, within three to four weeks of surgery, where some of those kind of more obese dogs or larger patients took even a bit longer to even regain the ability to kind of walk on their own. So kind of going from four weeks out. So I think that does definitely play a big role into things when we're dealing with kind of spinal issues, just like, you know, in people as well. Sure, sure. So sometimes, even though it might feel futile to have those weight loss talks, still so important. And I'll never forget one patient that I still treat now. She's a a dachshund mix type of breed, and she's very overweight. And I talked to mom, and she was not, she was just coming to see me for wellness, but I talked to mom and I said, hey, she's overweight. And given her breed, she's, she's chondrodystrophic. She's prone to all these issues. I really think she should lose weight. And mom said, okay, what do I feed her? And what should she weigh? And I told her, and she came back to me. I I kid you not at exactly that weight the next year. And I went, she lost all this weight. She looks amazing. Like everything's great. And she said, yeah, well, you told me to do it. And I said, yeah, but you actually did it. This is great. I know. And I think that also highlights just the importance of, you know, recognizing that and not really ignoring, you know, these patients that can maybe benefit from, from losing a bit. So I think that's a good thing to definitely bring up, you know, or even when we're seeing these guys for wellness or routinely still mentioning that I think is just important. Absolutely. Yeah. We all need those little like positive reminders because sometimes it can feel futile, but there are pet owners out there who want to hear what we have to say and they will listen to us. So making those recommendations on, on weight loss and nutrition and all these other things at the time. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing too, is that even thinking about, you know, some of our supplements, like glucosamine, chondroitin. I know even some of the dog foods, even the Hills dogs food, just have them kind of already in those maintenance diets and whatnot. So that's definitely something to keep in mind as well. Sure. Sure. Well, Dr. Block, this has been great. Thank you for sitting down with me and letting me ask all of my burning questions about how to appropriately manage these guys. I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. I hope you got some of your burning questions answered about managing neck and back pain, just like I did. I want to say a big thank you to Dr. Block for joining us. Thank you to Hills for sponsoring this episode. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.